And welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. This is episode two. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, Orange County, California. And I'm joined by Michael Ray, a doctor of chiropractic in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Mike, how are you? Doing well. How are you? Uh, I'm, I'm good, man. That was an awkward wave. <laughs> We've, uh, it's like pretending that we haven't been sitting on here for half an hour arguing. Is that yeah. better? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're also joined by Derek Miles, a doctor of physical therapy currently in Gainesville, Florida, but soon to be in the San Francisco Bay area. Or is that on? Is that still yes. on the hush hush? Uh, it's it's public knowledge. Oh, okay, <laughs> awesome. How are you? Well, how about yourself? Good man. Excited to jump on another show. We made it to, the epi- to episode two. We've survived episode one storm. Speaking of which, a couple announcements. We are officially on iTunes. So if you go onto the onto the Apple Podcast app and just search Clinical Athlete, you can subscribe to the podcast. You can leave a review, uh, preferably nice ones. But you know we 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 appreciate the honesty, but don't be mean about it. Don't be a jackass. Five stars or else or or nothing. Five stars or nothing. And we're also on YouTube, Clinical Athlete YouTube channel, and several other platforms, including SoundCloud and your RSS feed. So if you just go on clinicalathlete.com and just click on the podcast icon on the home page, it's a list of all the platforms that we're on. And we have a bunch of upcoming events. Our Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Curriculum is popping right now. Several two-day uh, Clinical Athlete Weightlifting Certification courses. I'll announce those first, and then the Scientific Principles of Sports Rehab. So the CWC course is coming to Bremerton, Washington in July, uh, Dallas, Texas in September, Brooklyn, New York in September, Sherwood, Oregon, which is close to Portland in November, and La Crosse, Wisconsin in November. That'll be fun. That'll be nice and cold. And then the Scientific Principles of Sports Rehab course, which Derek and uh, Michael, what's your name? And Mike give our lecture to. Actually, our first one is actually coming up in Boston in a week. Are you guys excited? Extremely. I can't wait to uh, get up in the Northeast for the weekend. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm super excited. So the very first SPOSR course is happening in one week. Hopefully this podcast is out in time. And that's in Worcester, Massachusetts on July 8th. We're also, you guys are also going to Harrisonburg, Virginia, Mike's hometown, or at least where you live now, in uh, July 29th. Hillsboro, Oregon, August 19th. Ottawa, that's Canada, September 16th. Falls Church, Virginia, September 23rd. Richmond, Virginia, the next day, September 24th. Harwood Heights, Illinois, on September 30th to uh, October 1st. That's a special two-day course. You guys will have a, a lab portion there on day two, so that'll be awesome. And then we just got a new one set up for Seattle on November 18th. So, guys, it, it, check out those dates, all the registration. that We have early bird rates, and all the details of the course are on clinicalathlete.com. So, let's get on with today's podcast. We are going to discuss a recent article titled The Effects of Tissue Flossing on Ankle Range of Motion and Jump Performance. This was out of the Journal of Physical Therapy in Sports. It was accepted in December 2016, and it was published early 2017. The authors on this study are Matthew Driller and Ryan Overmare. The objective or the stated objective of the of the study was to evaluate the effect of band flossing, and I'll just reiterate kind of a or detail that if people are like what the hell is band flossing it's the common practice now it seems of taking rubber compression bands and just wrapping them tightly around the joint 
Uh, and then maybe either just hanging out or moving through a certain range of motion. So the objective was to evaluate the effect of band flossing on ankle range of motion and jump performance. Uh, this was a crossover study design. So essentially, I'm going to roll through the procedures here. So essentially, they had 52 healthy recreational athletes, 29 males, 23 females. They were uh, roughly college age, anywhere from like six, it looks like, 20 years plus or minus four years. So, you know, relatively young, healthy. Um, what they did was they tested four things, uh, pre-tested the participants, nor the assessors or testers were blinded. They looked at ankle dorsiflexion with what's called the weight bearing lunge test, which is yours in half kneeling and you shift your knee to the wall and then you scoot your foot back and you shift your knee to the wall. They're looking for like the distance between your foot and the wall to measure anterior tibial translation. They also measured dorsiflexion with a goniometer and plantar flexion with a goniometer in long sitting, I think, with the knee extended. They looked at jump height using uh, some type of, of force plate. Correct me if I'm wrong there, guys. I wasn't familiar with the device but a uh, gym aware device is what they use to measure jump height and jump velocity. It was, they used a, a transducer for those things. So they tested those four measures and then they wrapped one of the ankles of the participants with the compression bands. The other ankle was the control. What is that sound in the background? What is that? Somebody. Uh... Someone beating on a wall. You guys hear that? Yeah, someone was beating on a wall somewhere. Is that on my end? No, I think it's on mine. My wife's upstairs baking. What is she oh. pounding on something? All right. She's making uh, macaroons. Yeah. <laughs> so sweet. Taking out her aggression towards Mike on some... Uh, <laughs> We're keeping this in, by the way. That's fine. Okay. Uh, so they wrapped the one ankle around. It didn't really specify whether they wrapped, like, the... Uh, the... the uh, what am, I, what am I going here? My dominant hand. Oh, dominant leg. Jesus. Or the right or left. It was just wrapped, wrapped a leg. The other leg was the control. So on the same participant, one was wrapped, the other was not. Uh, and they had them go through full range ankle plantar flexion and ankle dorsiflexion for two minutes to their comfortable range on both ankles. So they're sitting there and one ankle's got the band and it's pumping through plantar flexion, dorsiflexion. The other ankle does not, and it's doing the same thing. And they did that for two minutes, and then they retested uh, after a minute. So they took the band off, and they let them walk around, basically just like walk it off. You know, if their foot was like asleep, or they couldn't feel their toes, that type of thing. Um, and then they retested, and what did they find? Mike, what did they find? <laughs> Um, they claim to have found a slight increase in range of motion. Um, specifically, I think their focus was mostly on dorsiflexion improvement. And then also they found improved um, slightly jump height, jump velocity, and a couple of centimeters, not even a couple of 1.6 centimeter difference between groups for uh, weight-bearing lunch test. I can already hear your bias coming out. All right, I'm going to go <laughs> in, in ta into table one, the results. So, yes, that's what they found. They actually found... They found increases or at least trends toward uh, significance in at least in all of them. The weight bearing lunge test, they found uh, a small but significant effect 
in the amount of uh, anterior tibial translation. I think the difference, the total difference between groups is 1.8 centimeters, but the control group also improved by 0.2 centimeters. So the actual difference was a 1.6 centimeter increase in uh, anterior tibial translation with the weight-bearing lunge test. Plantar flexion uh, improved in both groups. It was not statistically significant, although it was a small, uh, small effect. Dorsiflexion measured with the goniometer in the open chain um, improved, or did it, in the floss. It actually went down, if you look at that. No, oh, no, no, it, it went down. It oh, yeah, you're right. That's right. Yeah. We talked about that. It's super weird. Okay, so, yeah, they improved by 7 degrees, uh, and the control group improved by 1 degree, so pre and post, and that was a small but significant effect size. Jump height, there was no significant difference between groups because both groups improved pretty much the same. They all put roughly like three quarters of an inch on their single leg jump height. And I didn't say, I didn't specify this, but it was a single leg jump. It wasn't a double leg jump. And then jump velocity was shown to have a significant improvement floss group versus the control group, uh, improving by 0.15 seconds it looks like so the, the the burst that you've got going up so they they found effects now uh before we get into the narratives and the discussion of these results what were some strengths uh, first of all why are they doing this study mike what, wh why are they even asking this question what's the relevance here yeah, I mean, I think they have a couple of good premise um, or a couple of good ideas that they're trying to look at here, mainly to see what's the effect of improving range of motion acutely on performance. Um, they also wanted to see, is, is there a possibility looking at um, with this improved range of motion and jump performance and velocity imp uh, improvement, can they mitigate risk of injury with it? Um, so they wanted to see, you know, this is a kind of a low tech implement. It does cost a little bit of money to order and utilize, but that an athlete could do on their own pre exercise or pre competition. So they wanted to see what are the effects of it, if any, um, and if it really matters or not in order to do this implement. Derek, what are your thoughts on, on the reasoning behind asking the questions that they're asking? Why are they doing this study? Well, I think studies like this are, are good starting points because there is a uh, plethora of interventions that have permeated the rehab world that don't have any evidence beyond anecdote, and the authors here are trying to at least contribute to the body of knowledge on it. So, you know, with the rate with which these interventions are being a part of and integrated into the rehab setting, we certainly need to have some justification for why we're going to use them or not use them. And I think the authors here wanted to take a good initial step towards seeing if there's any applicability to it. Yeah, just to echo what you guys said, they kind of summarize that nicely in the first paragraph of the intro. The anecdotal use of floss bands amongst athletes is becoming a popular strategy to to and and they say to increase range of motion enhance prevention or or rehab from an injury uh, or even improve athletic performance despite limited evidence for its efficacy so i that translates to me as it's very popular there's all these narratives being thrown around but there's not that much evidence so let's look at this and i you know obviously we appreciate that um for all the reasons that you guys said now let's talk about some strengths mike what'd you like about the study i thought they did well with the execution of it um, for overall, you know, they did 
proper um, separation or randomization into two groups. I would have liked to have seen maybe that they had an actual control group instead of just seeing one leg versus the other, but it worked for them. Um, they executed it well. They repeated the measures accordingly to how they were implemented from baseline to post-intervention. So, I mean, overall, they even actually measured um, millimeters of mercury as far as the pressure that the bands were exerting onto the tissue, which I thought was really cool, especially if they were trying to run a parallel to BFR. And I'm sure we'll get into that later about, you know, the differences between this and blood flow restriction equipment. But, yeah, I thought they tried to account for as many variables as they could think of. Yeah. Derek, what'd you like about it? Well, I think it's a good gateway study into looking at this topic. Um, the fact that they actually looked at range of motion in both goniometric measurement and in more, I guess we would say, functional uh, measurements, such as a weight-bearing lunge test, it gives them different angles with which to look and see what's going on. Yeah, I think so, too. The, on that point, Derek, I, we'll probably talk about some of these studies forward, the ones that they cited, but... I've seen some difference, like some studies looking at ankle range of motion and then, you know, different performance markers. And they see differences in whether the knee is uh, locked versus whether the knee is bent. So like the weight bearing lunge versus the locked knee. So in one study, it, it showed a, a change in like the, the weight bearing lunge test had some association with altered squat mechanics, but not for, for jumping. Whereas measuring the ankle with the knee extended, had more of an associated association with landing mechanics. So maybe it does have some type of proximity to the, like the weight bearing lunge mimics more of a, how the ankle will occur in the squat or how, how it'll move in the squat, something like that. So I, I agree with you. I, I liked, as you said, Michael, I thought it was cool that they, that they measured the pressure because that's obviously a variable that's probably as this thing is used, you know, in the clinic and just in the gym, there's probably, that's one variable that's not controlled for, you know, people are using, they're going either, pulling it as tight as they possibly can, or it's like super loose and it, it's just there because they, it's doing something because they think it's doing something. So I like that a lot. I think that was cool. And the, the gym aware, as I'm looking at their jump height and jump velocity, I guess this is a nice, uh, um, has shown to be a valid means of, of measuring those two outcomes. So I thought that was good. Um, yeah, I, I, and I think they laid out their procedures well enough that I could repeat this study. So that's always something that, that you're looking at, you know. It doesn't make sense. Could you? Could I? Could I do this thing? And I, and I think they laid that out relatively well. Um, what else? Strengths. Just to, you know, general strengths pop out at you. Anything? Well, part of it is you know it isn't an expansive study, so yeah. there's there's not a whole lot that we can really hash out of it. True. Um, you know, I I agree with you. We could certainly or should be able to come close to simulating or, or repeating the experiment off of the methods they gave us. So I think it's good that those are clear. Mike, yeah, I agree with that. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. It's definitely reproducible based on how they outlined everything. If, if we wanted to get together and collect some athletes and go test this out, we definitely could do it. Now, okay, well, let's just get into the weaknesses. I can, I can tell that Mike's just chomping on the bit here. Finally. I'm trying to, okay. I'm trying to control myself. <laughs> okay. Before I forget, I want to touch on the blinding aspect of this because I think it's a big deal. Neither the participants nor the assessors were blinded, meaning they all everybody a part of the study knew which ankle was the was the treatment group. They knew which ankle was the control group. That, that's a, a potential source of bias, and that's why it's it's nice to blind studies, and that way nobody is is swayed or influenced one way or another. Now, 
I, we're all going to kind of probably agree. And they also, I want to preface this by saying that they mentioned this as a limitation in their study. So they're not, they are not blind to the fact that this is a, a limitation of the study. So they, they're fully, they disclose that. Um, and I think we're, you know, we'd all agree that it's probably very difficult to blind the participants, but I would, I would reference a study that, uh, that actually Joe Cook was in recently or a part of where they actually did blind the participants. They, they, they told all, it was a blood flow restriction training. So they blinded the assessors, which we'll talk about probably at least in this study they should have done, but they blinded the participants by telling them that all of them were going to get BFR, blood flow restriction training, but they gave them a sham cuff. It, it was, it just wasn't the, it wasn't the same cuff. It wasn't uh, producing the occlusion. It was, it was just enough for them to feel. And then I'm assuming that the participants weren't familiar enough with BFR to know the difference. So they, they just know that they're getting something and they don't know if it's the treatment or not. Could, could they have done something like this here, Derek? Um, well, since they were measuring for millimeters of mercury, they certainly could have blinded the participants by having one ankle not put as much tension on. Um, I, I agree with you. The, the more blatant confounder it would be the assessor side of it. And, you know, all of us as clinicians have all measured a joint and been like, oh, we can get an extra five degrees out of this or if we need to, you know, or we get the patients that are like, oh, yeah, I can bend my knee a little farther than that. So if you know what's going on, you're already a little, well, the principle would be clinical equipoise and how much you believe what you're doing is going to work. So blinding the assessors here would have been a, a very key thing to strengthen their study. Mike, what do you think? Do you think they should have at least at minimum blinded the assessors, but also could have blinded the participants? Yeah, for sure. I mean, definitely I agree with what Derek said. Absolutely blind the assessors. Um, it, it just turns into a confirmation bias. Like they're already expecting to find something because that's the hypothesis they're testing. And so you just kind of look for that to improve range of motion because you did it. So you're you're kind of confirming what you're hoping to find. Um, not saying that does happen, but there is a risk for that. And so then it can kind of muddy the waters with your with your data that you've picked up from the study. I'm not sure I'm blinding the participants. Um, I think the example you gave with the BFR study with Jill Cook was a good representation. I just don't know because that's just a coffee slide on the arm and then you can pretend to pump it up and you don't do anything with it as long as they're naive to what it is. It's much easier to do it with BFR, I would think, versus I've got to wrap this rubber tubing basically around you and you've got to wrap it tight enough to at least where it stays. So I don't know. You could try it. I'm just not sure how well it would work out. Well, a point on that is you can, you can, because the fear is then that the participants know what what group they're in, you know, just inherently, but right. you, but you but you can survey them afterwards, and that can be part of like something that you put in there is that we surveyed the participants afterwards and said and asked them what group they thought they were in, you know, sure. to get some some kind of mix. I've seen some studies do that as well to just kind of validate the fact of the participants that there was the blinding did its job. Um, so, but mm -hmm. yeah, I, I agree with you. At minimum, we're blinding the the assessors to, to try to decrease that bias. So. So there's a, there, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, let's look at, let's just look at the results. I, I think that should be where we start because that we can look at the numbers here on table one and the, the effect sizes are all small. This is also a point that they emphasize. They, they do not say in the discussion or anywhere in the results that we had large effect sizes. These, 
the numbers are jumping at us that there are you no know, huge differences between groups because that, that wasn't the case. They're all small effect sizes. Some are, some are tri- trending towards trivial. They're all but one, uh, in the, the point two range. So like l- the low end of the small effect size. So let's just be realistic about what happened here. The, the weight bearing lunge test. Again, there was a 1.6 difference, uh, 1.6 centimeter difference between groups when they took the band off and they retested the, the weight bearing lunge test. But Mike, you've done some digging on standard error of measurement and uh, clinically, you know, minimum clinically significant difference for the weight bearing lunge test. Talk to me about that. Those numbers, like, does one point, does a 1.6 centimeter difference jump out at you as something that matters? Yeah, that's definitely a good question we need to focus on with this study. Um, I'll probably start with who they referenced. They referenced uh, Bunnell as the validation for why to use the weight-bearing lunch test. And the interesting thing with Bunnell is he basically says um, to account for standard error of measurement that you would probably need to see at least one centimeter or approximately three degrees increase in order to say that wasn't just simply the error of measurement um, from pre-trial to post-trial. Um, to actually read for him, he says, for example, if a therapist was using a mobilizing technique to improve range of motion of ankle dorsiflexion, a change of greater than approximately one centimeter or three degrees would be required to confidently attribute the observed change to the technique rather than to the measurement error of itself. So if we're talking between group differences of 1.6 centimeters, once we account for the standard error of measurement, you're now looking at 0.6 centimeters. Um, we also need to take into account minimal detectable change. So um, is there a big enough change between measurements, between pre-intervention and post-intervention to actually be quantifiable, um, which we could also call that into question as well. There are several studies that kind of looked at that with the weight-bearing lunch test. Um, trying we're to see. Not, and, and that's not the same as, you know, at an MCID. A minimally clinically important difference, you know, just the just the seat change, right. and then and then you have to jump at a tier to say is that even clinically relevant? We uh, we don't even have those, uh, as to my knowledge. We told they told, totally could be out there. I just haven't seen them, but I'm not sure what would be clinically meaningful. Like just because you increased it by, let's say, if we account for SEM 0.6 centimeters, what does that translate to dynamically in sport? Since they're focusing on jump height and jump velocity, does that really make a difference in their ability to access that range of motion that's tough to say and then the other other side of that coin is obviously as clinicians we're dealing with pain so does a 0.6 centimeters uh increase in weight bearing lunch test for tibial translation mean you have uh one decremental point decrease in pain scale i mean it doesn't there's no translation there that i'm aware of derek what about you or is that 1.6 centimeter difference giving you chills I think this is a good point of discussion um, regarding just some of the vernacular used in discussing articles versus what we implement in our actual practice and it's the difference between statistical significance and clinical significance. So these values did reach statistical significance, which depending on how you're going to, and it would have been nice if the authors would have given us the p-values um, in table one for what their differences were. But statistical significance just means there's a low likelihood of the difference that you're seeing being according to chance, whereas clinical significance is, does whatever this difference is have any applicability to what we do in practice? But for us, a lot of times, especially 
when you first start reading the literature, it, significance has this major connotation associated with it to where when we hear it, we're like, ooh, this has to be different. This is great. And, you know, they did reach statistical significance, but a very small difference in between groups here. And 1.6 centimeters isn't, you know, it's, when you look at the standard deviation associated with it, it's very unimpressive. And if you want a good visual way of looking at this, you can always get some graph paper out and basically just draw those lines with the confidence interval. And yes, you're gonna see your means are different, but with the amount of overlap between those groups, it, it kind of washes away pretty fast. Yeah, I, I, it almost becomes like, okay, did they measure error? And what they did measure, like, it's just breaching significance. Like, they themselves set the significance at 0.2 for judging effect size. And if you look through those, and I think you already mentioned this, Quinn, most of them just barely breached 0.2 for significance. Yeah, and Derek mentioned the standard deviation. So with the weight-bearing lunge test specifically, in the floss group, the, the pre-testing measure was, the average was 10.9 centimeters uh, with a center deviation of, of six. So you've got, you know, center deviation that's more than half of the average. And then the, the post-test, so you went from 10.9, did the, the treatment, and then you went to 12.7 with a standard deviation of 6.5. So it, it spans you know, 50% of the average, it, it, there's just a lot of variance there. And it, it's just with the, with the small effect, it's very, very hard to say if, if our question is, I'm going to, that difference is enough for me to begin to implement this into my practice. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make that decision and begin to spend the time here and, and educate the athlete. That's, that's always what we have to come back to, right? Are these, are these, whether they did statistics are you know did they did the statistics well that's one thing and then what are the outcomes are they enough to make me change my practice that's what we have to be asking it's it's tough with that it really is you mike you mentioned the banel study as it's my and that's from 98 that's a reliability study yeah. for weight bearing lunch test and to my knowledge that's the first one that was done there's been several after that there's um, a reliability and validity of a, of a weight bearing measure of ankle dorsiflexion range of motion by chisholm in 2012 Reliability of three measures of ankle dorsiflexion range of motion by Connor in 2012. Uh, the intra and inner rate of reliability of a modified weight-bearing lunge measure of ankle dorsiflexion by Graft in 2013. All of these studies showed repeatability with this test. So that's the strength of the study is they used the weight-bearing lunge test. They used a reliable tool. Sure. Uh, it's, it's repeatable at, at least. It's, it goes, then it goes back to... What, what I'm sure that we'll talk about is why does that matter and the, the validity as it relates to the narratives that they're spinning here in the conclusions, which is injury prevention and performance enhancement. And so that's kind of where, you know, what we have to dive into. Let's, but let's move on to each measure. So the weight-bearing lunge test, uh, that's what we're looking at as far as the results is a little bit closer. So it, we have to always take into account the standard deviations there. When we look at ankle plantar flexion that was not uh statistically significant and i you know i don't know where that would be relevant either i understand why they did it to just see global change in ankle range of motion but uh we'll jump to dorsiflexion open chain dorsiflexion measured with a goniometer where the floss group improved by seven degrees plus or minus 13 degrees as as a standard deviation and then the control group increased by one degree. 
Derek does a seven degree. So if we're imagining a goniometer, does a seven degree increase in range of motion after two minutes of work? Um, is, is that, what does that mean to you? Well, in, the authors say in the end, you know, they doing this five minutes later, they don't know how long the effect is going to be. So it, it doesn't make a, a huge difference out of that. Um, seven degrees, if, if you look at it, yeah, I mean, that's a decent little bit of dorsiflexion. But in the same token, going back to what I said a minute ago, I can push a little harder if I really believe the treatment works and all of a sudden I start getting into some more. And, and, you know, this isn't a fault of the author. We're all just as guilty of this. Anyone who's been listening to us talk for 25 minutes, it's pretty clear where our biases are. So this is part of the reason to come back to it one more time why blinding is so necessary for this. Because our biases are going to show through. And if we want to see if what we're doing is really working, then we need to account for those biases, both whether it be pro the intervention or anti the intervention. Yeah. I also think, too, like we have to call into question, like, why would I use this implement over other things like static stretching or foam rolling or uh, PNF or anything else that you can think of? Like, why would I pick? banded flossing pre-exercise for seven degrees of dorsiflexion because I'm pretty positive I could look through the literature and find all of those implements I just named off also showing a transient increase in ranges of motion. Well, and maybe that's, and, and I think maybe that's why, potentially why this paper is helpful to tell me that perhaps this intervention is no better than anything else that you can do to, to get the same, you know what I mean? So like, yeah, if, yeah. when you look at it, well, this data is is not sufficient for me to choose this intervention. Maybe that's helpful, you know. Maybe that's just one sure. more thing that you can kind of trim off the plate. But I I agree with you, and I and I agree with you, Derek. I I think this is where blinding comes into play, and I, you can't discount that. You know, when you're talking about seven degrees on a goniometer versus a one uh, versus one degree, so truly a six degree difference between groups, I can shove somebody's ankle six degrees further. You know what I mean? And, and also the standard error of, of measurement from what I've seen in most goniometry studies is at least three degrees. Yeah. It only hangs around three to five. Yeah. So we're looking at that too. So that's potentially cutting the difference in half again. You know, now we're looking at what maybe three to four degrees difference max. So it, very similar to the weight bearing lunge test. There is a it's statistically significant. How much does it matter that, you know, that's up for debate here. Jump height was interesting because both groups improved pretty much the same amount. We went from yeah. uh, the pre-floss group, the 0.23 meters to 0.27, and I think that equated to about a, a three-quarters inch difference in, in single leg jump height. And that was a similar 0.24 to 0.26 change in the control group. And uh, how much of that is just they repeated the test and they kind of get a better idea of, of you know, how to go, yeah. how to push on either leg. Yeah, I think it's a big point to make, too. Like, all of this was done in the same session on the same day. So they did pre-base, or they did baseline measurements. Then they did either control intervention or they did flossing intervention. And then they redid all the baseline measurements again in the same session in a matter of minutes. So we definitely have to take into account there was probably a learning effect that occurred from baseline measurements to post-intervention measurements, like, without a doubt. Jump velocity improved, and with a small effect of, of 0.22 with a standard deviation of 0.14. So again, if you take into account the standard deviation, then the effect size 
has not reached the threshold of, of being an effect, you know, being a small effect. At, at that point, you, it's considered trivial if you take into account the standard deviation. But regardless, jump velocity improved in the floss group from 1.88 meters per second to 2.03. So you get a, a 0.15 you know, second change there, or meters per second. And then with the control group, they improved to 1.94 to 1.97. Um, it just wasn't as much, but standard deviations in the floss group, we've got point the 2.03 as their post measure. The standard deviation was 0.37 meters per second. So a good chunk, you know, we're, a, a good chunk of their uh, of the difference there, or twice the difference, was their standard deviation. So it's just hard. And how much does 0.15 change in jump velocity? Equate to improved performance. I don't know. Well, if it didn't change jump height, then likely not very much because your actual metric should be how high you're jumping if we're going to talk performance. Right. Wouldn't you, if you're so, producing more force, you're probably going to go faster. Like, yeah. and higher, and higher. Yes. Right? right. Yeah. And also, these are, let's not forget the participants were recreational athletes. And honestly, looking at these numbers, they're not, I don't think they were trained. I don't think they were highly trained or at least had, you know, big backgrounds. They didn't seem to be putting up huge numbers, you know. So with that type of population, you're probably going to get an effect from a lot of things. Just yeah, I think the inclusion t criteria was just recreational athletes who exercise three times a week yeah, so uh, with no pre-existing lower extremity injuries. Yeah. Okay. So this is a point, too, where it's very, very important to read the full study. And you honestly don't have to be a whiz at statistics to see that some of this stuff is a little bit kind of like, eh, you know, you, you're, you're looking at the conclusions or you're looking at the fact that things were statistically significant. But when you actually look at the numbers, you've got to question the clinical relevance. And I'm, I'm actually going to jump down before we get in to start talking about these things a little bit more to jump down to the conclusion, because this was where I... I, I took a bit of pause in the conclusion uh, number uh, paragraph five on here on page four. I'm quoting the article, the potential benefits regarding the results of this study, the, the results that we all three of us just debated or, or discussed, the potential results of these studies, uh, this study may have a significant impact in the sports setting. More specifically, our results would suggest that including band flossing on the ankle joint before taking part in any sports that require jumping actions may not only improve performance, but may also provide a novel strategy for injury prevention through increasing ankle range of motion. So they're taking the results that we just discussed as being called into question based on their clinical significance, but they're taking that into the, the narrative or the conclusion that this may actually have a significant impact in the sports setting and may have a significant impact with injury prevention and performance. What am I missing? Based on, yeah, that's a good question. So yeah. we, this study, this is a, a big claim to come off of this study. And this is a point that we see all the time in 
papers where the data set is the data set and the authors want to generate a narrative off of it. And you know, nothing about this study looked at injury prevention. So you, you can't make that correlation. It's like the telephone game where you keep taking assumptions and two or three assumptions in your way off. And, and this study didn't have an injured cohort, didn't look at athletes over a season. Um, there isn't any validity established for it. So it's it's a it's a fun story, but it's not supported by the evidence that's provided in the paper. I think the problem that I have is that we know that that what most people do already is that they read the title of the of the article. So in this case, the effects of tissue flossing on ankle range of motion and jump performance, and then they read the abstract only and they jump right to the conclusion. So that title, combined with the potential benefits of the results of this study, may have significant impact, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's your narrative. Boom. That you know, that's enough evidence to now start incorporating this. If I'm a coach, I'm going to be giving it to all my athletes. If I'm an athlete, I'm going to be doing it instead of actually training. And, and if I'm a PT, where I, I should be, or or any healthcare provider, you know. So that's the issue with it. Had they, there's nothing wrong with their data. Their data is the data. It's like what you said, Derek. It's not their fault that the effect size was small. I think that gives us information. You know, if we're going to go further with this with this topic, we're going to ask different questions, or we're going to design the study differently, or like what I said earlier, I'm going to use this data to say that I'm still not very convinced about this thing, and so it helps me maybe trim the fat a little bit. But to to make that to spin that narrative is the issue, because that's what most people are going to read and. Um, if you already kind of have a bias towards this type of thing or some type of financial investment with it, I don't know, you know, you get a kickback by with Flossband LLC every time you're going to use like you're going to use the study to support your claim. Uh, and the evidence is just not that good. The, the data is just not great. So th- that's an issue. The by the way, I want to make this point and you, you two know this, but the audience probably doesn't. Anytime that we're, we're talking about a study, it's, this is not a shot. This is not a personal attack on the authors. We are discussing ideas. We're discussing the numbers. We're discussing the work. They happen to orchestrate the work. And so, and so inherently they're a part of the discussion, but it's not a, it's not a shot at any, this is, this goes forward for any future podcast. And with this paper specifically, the authors were actually uh, gracious enough to touch base with us and have a, have a dialogue or Matthew Driller emailed us and just with some points to the kind of discuss because i had done a video talking about uh, my thoughts with the article and some of the statistics and and we had a dialogue we actually wanted to get both of them on the podcast to talk about these ideas and we just couldn't work out the schedules but i actually thought that was pretty cool i uh, to have the researchers want to touch base with the clinicians so we can kind of uh you know talk about these issues and and make sense of things but going back to some of this data you know, there's some things that could be noticed here. Um, it, it looks as though, so first of all, we have a 90% confidence interval. And, and what that allows us to do is just kind of have an, I guess, a, a bigger window, window for the outcomes to be significant. So it, it's, I don't want to say it makes it, it makes it easier, but you're going to have statistical significance uh, more often with a 90% confidence interval than, say, a 95% confidence interval. So they, in this study, they chose 90% confidence interval. But I'm a little confused, and maybe you guys can make sense of this for me, whether we're looking at outcomes that are within group, so 
comparing pre to post of the floss specifically, or we're looking at differences between groups, between the floss post testing and the control post testing. And ultimately, are the effect sizes within group or between group? Do you, because I'm seeing on, on table one, the effect sizes seem to be labeled as between group differences from flaws to control, which I think, which we, we probably agree that uh, would lend itself to, to more reliable data because we're looking at, uh, you know, control versus the treatment. But if you're just, yes. it, but it looks as though that the statistical significance in the floss uh, data is actually within group. Yeah. Yes. So if you look at table one, um, it's a pre to post is where it, it even reads like they're getting their statistical significance from. So they're not even looking at the control side versus the floss group. They're looking at the floss group beforehand versus the floss group afterwards. And even if you look at how they calculated the effect size, I, I ran the data through an effect size calculator on the internet. Um, they're all over the place if you're ever looking to just quickly check your data. And when I looked at the control group versus the floss group, I was only getting an effect size of 0.169, which is lower than what they got. So I I don't know if this has to do with just the way SPSS ran their data through, but also if I run the floss group post versus pre looking for an effect size, I get 0.287, which is pretty close to the 0.29 that they got. So I don't know if it's just my inability to crunch numbers or they looked at their statistical analysis a little bit different than the effect size calculators I'm using. Derek, and just to point out, you ran that at a 95% confidence interval when you got to 0.16, right? Yes. Yeah, so the, just changing it from a 90% confidence interval to 95, we minimized that window and suddenly what we deemed significant for the data of the study no longer breaches significance level. And could it be possible that the effect size is simply mislabeled. As it stands now, it's labeled as between group effect size, but it's possible that it's actually just the within group. Yeah, that would make sense. It's just a mislabel of table one on the, the far right-hand column. Okay. Well, you know, it doesn't, going back to what we talked about in the beginning of the, of the show, already kind of questioning the clinical significance of the data, and now we're almost questioning the statistical significance of the data. Um, don't know. I, do you guys have any other thoughts on table one? Because, I, I mean, that's really all we have to go off of. There's no p-values to, to go further with this thing. So, Yeah, it would have been good um, since they ran a t-test. We could have seen the p-values for each individual measurement, weight-bearing lunch test, plantar flexion, dose flexion, so on and so forth. So we could assess significance that way. I mean, overall, I'm just very confused by table one at this point. Oh, perfect. Okay, and I'm assuming that we've lost all six listeners, and <laughs> if we're confused, they're confused, and they're like, no, we're done. But we're going to keep trucking along, because we have to talk about mechanisms. So let's, okay, questioning the data aside, it's always important to then ask why something works. So I saw a change in range of motion. Uh I saw a change in jump height. There's, there, we can ask a couple questions there. What are the mechanisms? So how exactly, why is the data, or, or the, is the range of motion changing? Physiologically, what's happening? Because that allows us to 
implement it. You know, if I know how something works, I have a better idea of how to dose it, when to dose it, why to dose it, why would I pick this intervention over something else? Again, when we know something works, we, we can tease these things out. And it's also, does it matter? Are these, are the tests themselves even testing what they're supposed to be testing? So I'm going to go, I want to talk about the mechanisms first because I think that we can jump on this stuff uh, pretty easily. For the range of motion changes in both the weight-bearing lunge test and the open chain dorsiflexion, the only proposed mechanism was that of a term called fascial shearing. Fascial shearing is not well-defined in the study because it's not well-defined anywhere in the literature that, that I've seen. And the only source in this study to uh, support fascial shearing as a mechanism for increased range of motion is a book called uh, Supple Leopard, which, so they actually cite that book in, in this study. Mike, Mike, stop laughing. They actually cite that book in this study. Derek, are you laughing too? I can't see. Oh, you're smiling. Yeah, okay, okay. Sorry, yes. Uh, which in and of itself has zero scientific references. So the source that they use to support their mechanism itself has zero science or evidence to support it. So I'm, I'm not aware of any evidence to support fascial shearing as a mechanism. I'm aware of a study by Chandri et al. in 2008 to show that it actually takes, it's probably beyond physiological realm to create that type of change in our tissues. The, the forces are upwards of, of like 2,000 plus pounds to like per square centimeter to create that type of change. So think about those crazy amount of forces somehow going like two, three layers deep and creating change, but not totally destroying everything in its path, your skin, for example. So it just doesn't seem very realistic. And it also seems like, well, I'll let you guys touch base. First of all, Mike, what do you think about fascial shearing? I mean, there's not much to think about it. There's no evidence to support that thought process or narrative. There's nothing I've seen for it. So um, as far as I know, it's just a, just a fancy fairy tale to tell someone a bedtime story with. Derek, have you ever sheared your fascia? No. Uh, there's, this is one of those, uh, once again, where you end up playing the telephone game. You have some studies looking at how fascia can tear at the molecular level, and it has nothing to do, nothing at all with any clinical application, but someone that looks at this study and extrapolates it out and tries to say, that, well, this is the actual mechanism. And it doesn't even hold if you go two steps into logic because there's no way dorsiflexion with a band on is even remotely close to the level of force if you go squat 450 pounds. So your orders of magnitude more force going through your ankle there. So if something as simple as putting a band on and, and plantar flexion and dorsiflexion could actually shear fascia, you should explode whenever you get a squat or actually go squat. So it doesn't make any any plausible sense. Yeah, they weren't even weight-bearing. It was just knee-extended, supported against gravity. Like, it, Yeah. Like Derek said, you would literally turn to dust if you got onto a barbell and actually squatted body weight. Like, it just wouldn't work doesn't make any sense logically you would disintegrate right nobody would have an upper trap trigger point yeah those would not i'm not sure sense. you could i'm not sure you could stand up against gravity if you're if your fascia sheared that easily like we wouldn't even be alive right now yeah <laughs> i'm actually looking at the chandri article now and trying to 
trying to see, but you guys, I'll just reference that for for everyone. The, the it's a it's called three dimensional mathematical model for deformation of human fascia in manual therapy. Uh, Chaudhry and and actually Robert Schlepp was the second author there. And yeah, known as I think it was. Go ahead. Go, no, you go ahead, Mike. I think it was ninety four hundred newtons of force, if I recall correctly. Okay. And, I, and if I remember, that equated to like two thousand plus pounds. But yeah. regardless, yeah. the results in the results. Uh, three-dimensional models equation revealed that very large forces outside the normal physiological range are required to produce even 1% compression and 1% shear in fascia lata and plantar fascia. Such large forces are not required to produce substantial compression and shear in superficial nasal fascia, uh, fascia however. So I, I think they did see that you could maybe cause like a 4% change if you went damn near to the end of uh, physiological range on your nose. Yes. So, nose. So, so like, so, okay, maybe perhaps we can deform fascia, probably eyelids. Uh, I don't know the skin on the back of my hand. So now we're reaching a little bit. Right. I think the question is, would that improve your performance at anything? Yeah. Bottom line is, is fascial sharing. I was, I was surprised, mostly surprised that they used a source that didn't have any evidence behind it itself. But fascial sharing doesn't seem to be, uh, substantiated. So, well, there's a lot of things that end up, uh, I mean, going back to your trigger point reference, everything is based off of the travel and Simon's book. So, it's not off of evidence, it's off of a text. And, you know, we had the epistemology conversation last time, but a textbook is not science. The, the data is not there for it. There is actually textbook is probably being generous on either one of those unless they come hardbound being the only qualification for it. Yeah, I think it's much more pop culture book. I wouldn't give that the title of textbook. Okay, so then why are we saying let's go let's forget about the what we talked about with the results and the and the data, whether or not it's actually statistically significant. What how do we explain the range of motion changes? If it's not physiological with fascial shearing, what's at play here? I think you could make the argument similar to static stretching um, or even foam rolling. Uh, it just improves your tolerance to the range of motion. So the sensitization that you feel with that area, your somatic awareness, it just improves your tolerance to movement, um, and which could be the same argument for why um, jump velocity improved um, and jump height improved in both groups is because it just improved their tolerance to the range of motion that they were testing. What do you think, Derek? Why did range of motion improve? It's not fascial shearing. I think a lot of it goes back to a combination of the clinical equipoise and just beliefs on it as well. So like we were saying, we can all get a couple extra degrees of range of motion if we believe something works. Um, just recently, Mark Bishop and Joel Bialowski just published a study uh, titled The Influence of Clinical Equipoise and Patient Preferences on Outcomes of Conservative Manual Interventions for Spinal Pain. And basically, when they looked at variance, a lot of the variance in outcomes was based upon how much the provider it was provider preference. So if the provider preferred using this method for more, it actually explained 35.8% of the variance in post-intervention pain. Now, this is a pain study and, you know, a little bit of a different conversation from range of motion, but it just goes to show the influence of provider belief in what's going on in, in the actual outcomes out of it. Yeah. Right, which heavily influenced the study because they weren't blinded. So we're going back to just some type of perceptual stimulus. Or could we even say maybe 
diffuse noxious inhibitory control, you know, the whole notion of creating a noxious sensory input to override another. Or like in this case, they're not in pain to start with, but, you know, you you create this strong sensory environment and all of a sudden you can just, there's a short-term change in something. Yeah, I mean, it's just... Fascial shearing, the problem is fascial shearing seems very permanent. If I if I shear my fascia, it doesn't. It's not like the T one thousand and Terminator two, where it gets blown up into a million pieces and then it just molds back into its original form. If I'm if I'm shearing my fascia, it's going to stay sheared for a while, you know. And so why, then why would? First of all, that sounds terrible. It sounds like I'm injured now. But why would I have to then voodoo my my ankle again? It should be a one time deal. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. Mike, what were you going to say? I, I think I was just going to reference something like it's almost like a post hoc fallacy. Like, oh, we intervened with this floss in your leg, and therefore you should be able to jump higher or jump faster and have better range of motion. So go go do that. Like, we've caused you to have that improved ability because we intervened with something. So it just seems like an A plus B equals C um, to me. And we've seen evidence showing, uh, comparing things like foam rolling, because I would put that in the same kind of the same bucket here, comparing like an exercise yeah. bike warm-up versus just a foam rolling warm-up for the same amount of time and then you get range of motion changes even more so with the exercise bike it, it just yeah. you know it's just something um but it's it's not that mechanism I'm, I'm confident that we can say it's not that based on the, the current evidence right uh now okay so so that's the range of motion and then you know the mechanisms are kind of explained fascial shearing for range of motion but Fascial sharing doesn't have a bearing on the performance testing. For the performance testing, the mechanism of action that was proposed was similar to blood flow restriction, where you're getting changes in an in endocrine response. Uh, I'm not. I'm looking here. I don't know if they if they referenced anything else to explain the parallels with blood flow restriction other than. Uh, like it, it changes in endocrine response. Was there anything else there? Well, in, if you look at what they referenced, they talked about a study where it was 200 millimeters of mercury was what was needed to even cause that hormonal response. And they were averaging 182. So they were even below that threshold. But still, once again, it's it's speculation. Like this gets into, yes, it, it's a narrative they're driving, but there is no support for it. This study didn't look at hormonal response. So anything coming off of that is entirely speculation on what's causing it. It could just as easily be magical pixie dust. So, and there's just as much evidence to support it in this instance. Yeah, there were no physiological markers, no blood draws, nothing was done in order to assess, was there any endocrine uh, responses that changed due to voodoo flossing? The protocols are also completely different. Any yeah. any yes. BFR study or protocol that I've seen has the cuff at the proximal thigh for for any lower extremity uh, focus. It doesn't matter if it's the ankle, knee, or hip. It's the it's proximal thigh, and the exercise protocols, the repetitions, this the volume of work. It's it's totally different than than what was uh, done here. So it, it, it's way more controlled, way more controlled. Yeah, there's really there, there really is no comparison. Not yet. Yeah, you just can't take this data and with what happened and to say that. And again, why? So is the thought process then that they had some type of boost and endocrine response and they had this like, uh, 
potentiation effects because they were full of a bunch of raging hormones, but both groups improved the same and pretty much the same with jump height, so that doesn't make any sense either. I'm just not saying, I'm not seeing the parallel with blood flow. I think they reference a heart rate variability study somewhere uh, that kind of they're trying to support the argument that there's an acute increase in norepinephrine, um, which is affecting that ability as well for jump ability. Well, both groups had that much, right, right? Right. But we didn't measure yeah. that, so it doesn't matter. It, it's 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 pure conjecture. Pure conjecture. I would think so. Maybe voodoo band shit. If it was wrapped around my neck, I would probably have some adrenaline pumping. I think you would probably have a hypoxic response there. I'll, I'll give you yeah. that. Just enough. I think they call that death. No, yeah. no, 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 no. Just enough. <laughs> Slap me in the face. Oh. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. All right. Uh, at least it only took us a little while to get weird on this podcast. All of a sudden, yeah. the six people listening are like, "Oh shit, here they go!" No, they're back. Quinn's personal, they're Quinn's back. personal, personal life came out. <laughs> okay, um, so that's the mechanisms, and we're kind of back to square run, which is for me, it's disappointing. And and before we get into just the the validity of of all this, anyway, like why does this even matter in the first place? With Mike is just chomping. I'm trying to. I'm trying to drag this podcast on for like four hours, <laughs> and then and Mike is just forced to not talk about validity because it's common people. But if we don't know how something works, and I get that we have very little understanding about mechanisms for anything that we do, especially in the rehab world. We're not talking pharmaceuticals where there's much more control with, with the science. With what we do in clinic, the mechanisms are gray no matter what. I, I get it. But if you have no idea... If I have a table full of, I have, I have just lined up a, a treatment table with voodoo bands, with lacrosse balls, with the band distraction, like the joint distraction bands, foam rollers, uh, instrument assisted soft tissue set, a cup, cu- you know, cupping set, uh, f- fuck, whatever, whatever, you know, name your poison there. Need dry needles. If we don't understand the mechanisms, how do I differentiate picking one of those options over another? It's, it comes down to which course you took first. Which one did you learn first? That's probably, or which one did you like first for whatever reason? It's probably going to be the one that you choose. And then it's going to be studies like this that have a conclusion that draws a narrative from questionable data. So, or so, sunk cost fallacy. Yeah, exactly right. So you spent all this money. You spent thousands of dollars to invest, invested yourself into learning to being trained in dry needling. Uh, You've invested so much time to learn that technique. Are you telling me you're not going to use that on the majority of your patients? Hell no. And then you're going to have to spin that narrative, right? And so that's my, that's my issue when we can't explain why something works or have, or, or the mechanisms that are proposed have no backing themselves. Why would I choose this? Why would I choose this for, a very small change. Derek, tell me why. Just tell me why. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do it. Just tell me why. Well, my first thing would be don't do it. But the answer is because you believe it. And if you look at it, almost all of these, it all comes down to how much you believe it's going to work. So 
you're not in you're not changing any tissue structure you're messing with belief systems out of this and this gets into some of the conversation of the development of a ritual so a lot of times this doesn't really do anything but it just slowly starts becoming part of the ritual of training yes before or I need to do mobility work for 45 minutes to get everything going. And you're not changing shit. You're, you're just creating this big, elaborate theatrical performance where you could just have the weight on your bar or weight on the bar on your back and be getting going. So it's, it's peacocking for lack of a better way of saying it to where it's like, you know, the guy who goes into the gym and just gets to work and keeps his head down doesn't garner much attention. But we've all been to the gym. As soon as someone starts doing some new stupid shit, we all start paying attention to it. And it's all the new thing. And you're like, oh, look at the shiny object or look at the, oh my, it has voodoo on it. So did this originate in New Orleans? Can I get it on Bourbon Street? But it's, it's it generates this conversation. So, you know, I, I would much rather walk into the gym Blast some Taylor Swift and get going because that's what I need to warm up. To play devil's advocate, Mike, you know, this, I would say that if I'm comparing compression bands to something like foam rolling, I can at least wrap that band around the joint and then do a movement. With a foam roller, it's like an arduous thing. You got to roll on the ground. You're not doing anything but the rolling. If I'm going to get, maybe, right. If I'm going to be like, no one stopped to think like the act of rolling itself probably is having an effect, not that the actual implementation of the foam roller, but that that factor on the ground, moving your body around. Right. Yeah. And the ritual, like what Derek said, but if, if the argument is because we're going to get, you know, we're going to get these questions from athletes and, and have kind of the discussion with other clinicians is it seems like a very easy thing to implement and may create a small effect. So if it's easy and it can give me a little bit extra, what's the harm? Yeah, I think the problem is we don't have any evidence to say that it does give you any extra, extra being improved performance. And we have that shown in their own data that the both groups improved jump height. I mean, if I would have looked at that data and they jumped, uh, you know, way higher than versus a control group and we could talk about what's way higher but showed a significant difference then i would be like yeah maybe we should be using this pre for pre-training for basketball players or whatever but it didn't show that it's not showing improved performance um significantly by itself so why use it i mean we have other things that can be done like derek was talking about maybe for your warm-up it's just doing the movements you're preparing to train under load but you do them with less load or just body weight or as you mentioned earlier, there's a study by Morales that compared uh, foam rolling to dynamic warm-up in 10 minutes on a cycle erg, demonstrated greater benefits in perception of achievable range of motion than versus foam rolling. So I, I think why should we implement a device that could promote dependency long-term and becomes part of that ritual where people think they need to do it on a regular basis? Otherwise, they can't perform when we have evidence to say that, well, it's not really improving your performance. It's an unnecessary dependency in my book. And at the end of the day, too, I'm just cheap. I'm a cheap bastard, and I don't want to spend money if I don't have to. So why am I going to spend money on these voodoo floss bands that aren't actually having an effect? Oh, Mr. Passive-Aggressive. <laughs> uh, he, did, he did the air quotes for you guys who are going to be listening on uh, iTunes or whatever. Can't see that. No, yeah. I, You've made me hold that in for like two hours. Like, <laughs> no, no, I'm going to let you go here in a second. I'm going to just let her rip. Uh, Derek, I, this, this study did not measure pain and these were healthy controls, but I, in, I anticipate more studies on painful subjects and to see if an intervention such as this has an effect on pain. 
And let's say it does because I, so I did the other, I made a Facebook post the other day where I said I, my knee was a little sore when I was squatting and then I rubbed it really hard for 10 seconds and I squatted again and it felt better. And I see that, I see this as a, kind of like a, again, like an overload and sensory over sim, sensory stimulus. So let's say like I'm squatting and I feel a little discomfort in the front of my ankle and then I, I compress the bands around my ankle and I move through. And then when I squat after taking the bands off, I feel less pain. And it, it is a bridge to allow me to then load the movement that was once painful. It is a, a temporary bridge. What is your response to that, Derek? I hate the bridge analogy. <laughs> I feel like you're just teeing me up for this. You have to ask where that bridge is leading. And, you know, everyone's always like bridge to somewhere, bridge, it's bridging the gap. Like people forget every time you drive over a bridge, a lot of science went into that. You're, you're not going to go over a bridge that was built by Jim Bob down the street. There is entire engineering core that do nothing but build bridges. So for us to use that metaphor, there is an inherent implication that we actually have put some thought into what we're doing with this bridge. And very rarely in life is there ever an instance where the shortcut is the best way. And whenever you hear easy fix, that should already start throwing off a little bit of a, a flag to where you're like, all right, well, am I really getting a long-term effect out of this? And this goes back to how transient this effect may be. And if it's something that all of a sudden you start relying on, I, I would argue there is harm in that because then you start losing faith in yourself to do the task and start thinking you need to go put voodoo floss on it or whatever you're building your shitty bridge with. And it's if we are there to really facilitate independence in our patients or our athletes, Doing interventions like this may be a quick fix, but it certainly is not in the best interest of the long-term outcomes. Yeah. I go back to, for me, it, for me, it comes down to being able to choose, differentiate between interventions. Why am I choosing this over this? And when I have no answer, and I, if I say anything other than I don't know to the athlete who asks me if I should do, what does this do? Why would I pick compression band over foam rolling over this and that? If I say anything other than I don't know, I'm, I'm creating a false narrative. I, I'm, I'm, because there's no evidence to, to say either way. So yeah, I, I'm with you now. We could, we it could be singing a different tune if, if the data was different. Like if the f effect sizes were larger, like if it was just better data, maybe we're like, well, you know, I'd like to see some more research, you know, okay. Um, we still can't yeah. explain why, but at least there seems to be something there. Now let's dive in a little bit, but it, it doesn't seem to be even that. And this kind of gets into, are we, are we truly measuring even what we're supposed to be measuring? So I'll go back to the, hold it, Mike. I know you're rearing to go here. I'll go back to the conclusion. The potential benefits regarding the results of this study may have a significant impact in the sports setting. You know, sports setting could mean anything. So that's just kind of a general statement. More specifically, though, our results would suggest that including band flossing on the ankle joint before taking part in any sports that require jumping actions may not only improve performance. Boom, that's a claim. We need evidence. May not only improve performance, but may also provide a novel strategy for injury prevention. Another claim through increasing ankle range of motion. 
Well, that last part, we don't know if it actually does that yet, but let's talk about those claims that this intervention and just increasing range of motion in the ankle improves performance and also uh, decreases risk of energy. Mike, go. Yeah, so it's a lot to unpack here. Uh, we'll start with the range of motion. So obviously this intervention was done on healthy subjects who most likely have normative, what we'd call normative ankle dorsiflexion, plantar flexion, inversion, eversion. So, okay, you maybe, I'm not even sure based on what we've discussed with table one's issues today, maybe you improved it by six degrees of dorsiflexion in a controlled setting um, with an extended knee. Like, what does that mean to sports performance? Does that static measurement transfer over into dynamic movement? Um, and, and if it does, how does that improve performance? Because it, it's really almost a reductionist approach. It's like, let's look at a single joint in a multi-jointed movement where a lot of things are happening um, and not taking into account kind of a global perspective. I don't think you can just look at ankle dorsiflexion, plantar flexion and say that that small improvement actually turned into anything that mattered. And their own data shows that, again, both groups improved in jump height and jump velocity. So it didn't make a difference either way for the ranges of motion. And we don't have any, now if this would have been done on say, someone had a huge, acute trauma to the area um, and we were looking at improving meaningful difference and we have to define what is meaningful difference in the ankle joint for rehab purposes, maybe this would be a different approach, but this was in healthy subjects that already have normative ankle range of motion. So it doesn't, it just doesn't equate a whole lot to me. Well, we don't even know if they did cause that wasn't even, there's no injury history on these, there's no, they didn't take, you know, there's no, there's no, um, mention of normative values even. Right. So that's to say, I'm, yeah, yeah. We're, to, to we're, point. we're right. We're hypothesizing that because they say they're healthy subjects, they had normative range of motion. I, I'd like to go through some of the sources that they reference regarding injury risk, regarding ankle range of motion as it relates to injury risk. They cite a few. There's a, Malaris, Malaris, Cook and Kent study from 2006. Uh, Jill Cook, yeah. you know, and, and the name of the study was reduced ankle range of motion associated with patellar tendinopathy. So now we're in to painful population injury state. So not not the same population here. And um, they so they they found that reduced ankle dorsiflexion. Reduced. We, we don't know what that means just yet, but reduced ankle dorsiflexion range may increase the risk of patellar, patella tendon injury among volleyball players. They did use the weight bearing lunge test. So at least we're seeing that task kind of being reused. Um, what they saw, you know, when they talk about that, that quote may increase the risk. Really what they found was of all of the outcome measures that they looked at, ankle dorsiflexion was the only one that had an association with the volleyball players who had patellar tendinopathy. We cannot... On the right side. Yeah. Just on the right side. Just on the right side. The left side didn't even wash out. So, obviously, we can't infer causation there, you know, meaning reduced... We can't say reduced dorsiflexion causes patellar tendinopathy, nor can we say that increasing dorsiflexion range of motion would somehow have a positive effect. They did have... uh, They did seem to have a cutoff. Players with less... So they measure their their weight bearing lunge test differently. Also, they use an inclometer. This is actually how I've seen done 
seen it done more often is an inclinometer, inclinometer on the anterior shin, and they measure in degrees and not centimeters because the shank, like your shin, your shin length can kind of affect how far away your knee is, your foot is from the wall. So I think the inclinometer is maybe more reliable, but they had a cutoff of players with less than 45 degrees of ankle dorsiflexion may like appear to that that was the association appeared to have a greater risk of patellar tendinopathy but that wasn't a strong cutoff it wasn't like clear cut um so that was that was one article that this that our, our article in question used to support the premise that increasing ankle range of motion uh reduces or is an injury risk factor and then they uh cited another one gabe or, or gab g-a-b-b-e from 2004 the name of the study was Predictors of lower extremity injuries at the community level of Australian football. It was this was a prospective study, and they again used the weight bearing lunge test. So at least we're seeing that test. And for the 59 players that they looked at, a lower extremity injury, or for the 59 players who were who ended up getting injured, a lower extremity injury was the first injury sustained during the season. I'm actually have a mix up. It might have been just been 59 total. But only dorsiflexion range of motion was significantly associated with a sustaining a lower extremity injury. Now, lower extremity injury can mean a lot of things. And we can say the same about causation, cannot be inferred. They, I wasn't able to find a, a cutoff. So to, to say that dorsiflexion range of motion was associated with a lower extremity injury risk, that's about as far as we got. We don't know much beyond that. But... This is an article that this that's paper cited, uh, and then they cited one more from 2000 to Breezy. Limited dorsiflexion predisposes. Actually, they didn't cite this. I, I think I pulled this one up. Limited dorsiflexion predisposes to injury of the ankle in children. Um, they look. This was weird. They looked at the uninjured side of 82 kids who had already sprained their ankle. So they took they, uh, like an acute ankle sprain or foot injury, and then they just measured their ankle range of motion on their non-affected side and showed that kids who had the injury had decreased dorsiflexion on their unaffected side compared to a control group who didn't currently have an ankle or foot injury. Hmm. And the mean in the control group for dorsiflexion was 12.8 degrees. They used a goni there, so 13 degrees. And Michael, love this. Um, with the knee extended, oh, it was actually it was with the knee extended. It was eleven point two degrees in the kids. So let me let me back up here. Knee bent for the kids who who already had an ankle injury with their knee bent. They averaged five point seven degrees of dorsiflexion. With their knee straight, they averaged eleven. So it makes sense. Like you straighten your knee, you put the gas truck on tension, blah blah blah. For the control group, it was 12.8 degrees with knee flexed and uh, it was 12.8 degrees with knee extended and 21 degrees with knee flexed. Okay, just for everyone's reference, what Quinn meant to say, the injured kids measured 5.7 degrees of straight knee dorsiflexion and 11.2 degrees of flexed knee dorsiflexion. The controls measured at 12.8 degrees of straight knee dorsiflexion and 21.5 degrees of bent knee dorsiflexion. So, there was a difference, but it, we go back to inferring causation. We don't know. We, we, but there seems to be, 
well, I guess my, the point I'm trying to make is the authors of this study, they're not just saying, you know, ankle range of motion is a risk factor and they're just taking that statement and it's out of the blue. There, there does seem to be something there. Now we could break down these articles specifically and find that there are so many holes that you just have to throw it out completely. Like that's very possible. Yeah. That's, that, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, they're they're making a, a huge illogical jump. Like they're taking healthy subjects and examining examining dorsiflexion and saying, "Well, we improved range of motion, therefore, because we improved it, that's going to mitigate injury occurrences." And we know that the risk for injury. First off, I don't even, and you guys know this about me. I don't even like the word prevention because we're not going to prevent anything. There's just far too many factors that we have to account for. And yes, we could argue absolutely. There seems to be enough evidence to say ankle range of motion, especially dorsiflexion during um, drop landing and jumps does matter and can possibly be a correlate to injury risk for lower extremity. But outside of that, we really don't know anything based on the current evidence outside of that. And so to say, because you improved it in healthy subjects, you're mitigating injury occurrences, that's a huge illogical jump in my book. I agree. Big time jump. One more that that driller and Overmare cited, because I think this, I, I think it's important to point this out because in our study in question, they reference the ACL, and they they say they make they make a point or make a statement that seems to state that ankle range of motion restriction has a correlation to ACL injury rates. This is in this is in the uh, introduction of our compression band study. Mm-hmm. So I'm not I'm not just kind of making this up here. It says. When landing from a jump, the forefoot usually contacts the ground and then the ankle moves into dorsiflexion. Indeed, it has been suggested that reduced ankle dorsiflexion range may be a risk factor for the development of patellar tendinopathy. We've already covered that one. And is also a risk factor for ACL injury. So claim, claim, claim alert, right? So we got to figure out. So then let's look at the sources that they use for that. The only one that I could find was that they, that they use that would have made sense for that claim is from Fong et al. in 2011. This is a reference in the compression band study. Ankle dorsiflexion range of motion and landing biomechanics. They measured dorsiflexion with a goniometer. They saw that greater knee dorsiflexion, or great, <laughs> knee dorsiflexion, greater ankle dorsiflexion with the knee extended was associated with greater knee flexion and smaller ground reaction forces when you land. That makes mm-hmm. sense, right? So basically they said that like when your ankle dorsiflex, it's associated with more knee flexion when you land, like your joints are absorbing the impact. And then that seems to correlate with decreased ground contact. That makes sense. And when we think about some of the ACL injury risk mechanisms, landing on a bent knee or landing on a locked knee, like large ground contact forces. Okay, cool. But this study, that's as far as they went. The Fong et al. study. That's all they showed. They did, weren't trying to... This wasn't a prospective study. And there were no other ma- measures to, to say that this also then equates to e- increase or decrease injury rate. So to go back to the compression band study, to say that increased dorsiflexion is a risk... Or decreased dorsiflexion is a risk factor for ACL, ACL injuries based on the simple fact that... You're, you, people just bend their knee a little bit more when they use their ankle dorsiflexion. That's a, that's what you said, Michael. It's a leap. And it also assumes that 
any change in the weight-bearing lunge test is going to then be shown in a landing task. Yeah. Like if I gain 1.6 centimeters in half-kneeling ankle dorsiflexion, somehow then I'm going to automatically be u- be able to use that 1.6 centimeters when I land. Yeah, it's, it's increasing control in a controlled environment range of motion versus a dynamic environment. And just because that range of motion is increased in the static measurement doesn't mean that it's going to transfer over to your ability to access it when it counts. More specifically, when it counts and you're fatigued. Right. And then back to the Fong et al. 2011, they had a cutoff. The average amount of dorsiflexion was about 14 degrees. So we're kind of seeing a trend there with like straight knee, extended knee dorsiflexion like an average being in that 10 to 14 degree range, but that wasn't necessarily an injury risk factor cutoff. It was just kind of like a normative value. Um, and, th- and then that study, you know, reduced, they, they claim reduced ankle dorsiflexion as a risk factor for ACL injury based on that. So they go that they, they make that leap too. Uh, so I don't know, man. Well, but this gets into, we all like to distill things into simple concepts and, you know, I'm certainly guilty of it. I'm sure the two of you are as well, but it's way more complicated than that. Like if you look at some of the reviews on what correlates with ACL injury, you're talking 30 plus factors going into it. So yes, you could make the argument that distilling it down and, and controlling for one may have something, but you're, it may have an effect, but is it even remotely significant out of it? So there are just so many variables, and our time could likely be spent or utilized much better elsewhere than trying to make a jump to say because we increased dorsiflexion, we have decreased the likelihood of an ACL injury. So, I mean, if, if you want to decrease the likelihood of ACL injury, don't play sports. I just dramatically decreased the likelihood of an ACL injury happening. Well, you've got to establish efficacy and then effectiveness, right? So, like with efficacy, yeah. we got to, we have a, we have to establish normative values and range of motion. Then we have to establish some type of risk factor cutoff prospectively, cutoff. and then and then it's got to be do our interventions have an have an effect on that range of motion, and then do our does that change in range of motion then have an effect on injury rates? Like there's just yeah. it, it's a there's a step process here and go to go back to the leaps this is why it's like a leap in logic that's exactly what's happening is we're jumping over those steps to yeah. get to the end and we just haven't made that yet a, a great article on that is the barrel Dell study that was released i think what was it last year and it goes through uh in comparison of like this is what needs to happen step by step from conjecture all the way through like you said quinn establishing normative values cutoff points risk factors so on and so forth and synthesizing that synthesizing that information out and my concern with this approach, kind of like the overarching theme here is, okay, sir, is the argument we should be going around and doing a WBLT to every single athlete or patient we come into contact to? And, oh, you're a degree off of dorsiflexion or anterior tibial, a uh, centimeter off for anterior tibial translation. So you're at greater risk. So now we need to intervene. Like there's, there's so much potential for a slippery slope here with this narrative that it almost looks to me like parallels to the FMS. And we all know where the research has gone with the FMS most recently is that it doesn't have a predictive value for injury occurrences. And just because you look at seven arbitrary movements doesn't equate to anything ultimately other than can you perform those movements and it doesn't transfer over into sport. That's kind of the same thing I see here. Like it, to me, it is unlikely the measurements we're taking that we, although are reliable, I don't think they're valid measurements. It's not ultimately getting at what we're trying to accomplish. 
Well, there's also this baseline assumption that more is better. Right. And, you know, what happens if we maximize everyone to the most dorsiflexion you could possibly get? So just because you have more dorsiflexion, does that necessarily correlate with a decreased injury risk? Because we all want to look, and this gets back into the narrative of it. Well, do we need to increase inflammation or decrease inflammation? Do we need to increase range of motion or decrease range of motion? Well, more blood likely. Blood flow. Yeah, yeah. Yes. blood flow, pain, pressure threshold. Like you can use any one of these, and it all goes back to the narrative that isn't substantiated. It's if you're going to say that you need to in, or increase dorsiflexion, it, it has an injury prevention component to it. Then there has to be a window on that. Like, and, and just the automatic assumption that more is better is wrong. Uh, I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of people walking around with a ton of dorsiflexion that have piss poor biomechanics, and, and you know, it, it's multifactorial. And yeah. you just using the more dorsiflexion is better. I'm, I can certainly tell you plenty of athletes I've had that have all kinds of dorsiflexion, and when they land, it's like dropping a cinder block off of a house. <laughs> yeah. So it, it yeah, it, it doesn't like just distilling it down to this one component. You miss the actual probability of having some kind of influence. And I, yeah, I think this yeah. goes, I think this goes back to what Derek was saying earlier. Like our time could be better spent trying to control variables that we have evidence showing that actually matter when it mitigates injury risk. Um, Jones Adele did a study on this. I think it was a systematic review and he looked at basically training load has a huge effect on mitigating injury risk, illness, fatigue state, and then psychosocial management or coping skills. Like those are things that we can be talking to our athletes about on a regular basis, especially with Gabbett's work coming out regularly about acute on chronic workload ratios. Like we have a lot of evidence to support other variables we should be focusing our time on with athletes in order to mitigate risk for injury, not what is your ankle dorsiflexion. Okay, yeah. Well, but there was a review by Tarada in 2013 in Journal of Athletic Training for therapeutic interventions for increasing ankle dorsiflexion after ankle sprain. Now, granted, this is an injured population, but it's a systematic review. And if you look at their plots, it, it is literally throwing the kitchen sink at this on what they have studies for, like mobilization with movement, uh, rice. And, and they all have... What's funny, the same type effect of what we see in this study where everything has a little bit of a positive effect, but the confidence interval always crosses zero. So it, it just shows that you can kitchen sink this or you can realize that a lot of this gets better on its own. Yeah, I, I'll close the door on the ankle range of motion and injury risk factor here with one review that I dug up. That in 2015, uh, Mason McKay et al. The title: The Effect of Reduced Ankle Dorsiflexion on Lower Extremity Mechanics During Landing: A Systematic Review. And they kind of said, they basically summarized what we said. Uh, there is evidence, probably much of what we've talked about, that restricted dorsiflexion range of motion may alter lower extremity landing mechanics in a manner which predisposes athletes to injury. Interpretation of these results was made difficult by the variation in landing tasks investigated and the lack of studies investigated sport-specific landing tasks and different mechanical patterns. So it's, it, it's basically what you guys just said. There's so many variables to take into account, and this one variable 
than to to extrapolate that to a narrative that we're reducing injury risk by making a a 1.6 centimeter change at best. It's tough. It's tough to do. So, I mean, I, I wish it was this simple. I really do. Like if it were this simple, you better believe I would check WBLT on every single person I came into contact with, especially if they play a jump based sport, but it's just, it's not this easy. It's not that simple. Like anything, you examine it more closely and you realize, wow, this is a pretty complex topic. So let's go, let's shift away from injury risk and just talk, you know, performance because Derek, you said something like, you know, more is not better. But from an injury risk factor, from a pain perspective, but maybe, you know, let's spin the narrative to performance. Do like for a squat, for example, a front squat, overhead squat is, is more better in that case, because, you know, the more anterior tibial translation, the more your hips can kind of shift forward under the bar, you know, more upright position, et cetera, et cetera. So I've got, and then the, this is another little qualm that I have with our original paper is that they seem to say that the fascial shearing or like ankle range of motion was kind of its own thing. And then performance and BFR was its own thing. But then in the conclusion, it lumps ankle range of motion and performance together. So there's, it's, it's kind of confused on the narrative in general, but these are papers cited in this one paper actually cited in the compression band paper to, to show ankle range of motion as it relates to performance. It was one study in 2010 from uh, Conradson et al. And it was ankle, the title Ankle Joint Mobility and Standing Squat Posture in Elite Junior Cross-Country Skiers. It was a pilot study. And they measured passive dorsiflexion, I think, with a goni and showed that reduced ankle dorsiflexion was associated with increased trunk flexion during a squat. So I'm hypothesizing, I'm kind of picturing that as somebody who's like trying to squat with a vertical shin and instead of like falling on their ass, they counterbalance themselves by hinging forward. So it makes, it makes sense, goes, but that's all. Yeah, this kind of gets back to that Fry study from a few years ago where they let some people's knees go forward in a squat and then they didn't control for it and it, you either had to get torque at your knee or your hip. Yeah. So are you robbing Peter to pay Paul if you're trying to increase this ankle dorsiflexion out of it? And once again, we are immediately back to the multifactorial nature of all of this. Does it maybe depend on the task? But, you know, if... Well, if go ahead. Good. Uh, it depends. Yeah, once again, yeah, it's yeah, multifactorial. Yeah. So maybe... I don't know anything about cr- cross-country skiing. So maybe if I talk to a cross-country ski coach and they said, you know, if somebody can squat more like just kind of sit straight down into a quarter squat or be more upright, which I don't know, but you know, trunk flexion is like inefficient or something like that. And that's a universal thing that's known in cross country skiing. And then you show this, maybe I'm for with my cross country skiers and I'm going to get, get in next week. Maybe we're doing more like front squats and like counterbalance squats where we're cueing to be really upright and to like use our ankle dorsiflexion a little bit more. And we're not going to low bar squat these kids because they already good morning their squat anyway. I don't, I'm pontificating, but I, but I think it goes to the point of, again, maybe it's task specific because they, the compression band article doesn't really cite much more than that other than previous studies that we've already talked about as far as dorsiflexion as it relates to movement and performance. But which I was surprised about because there's actually a lot of them. Uh, Dill et al. 2014 altered knee and ankle kinematics during squatting in those with limited weight-bearing lunge dorsiflexion range of motion. So they, they used the weight-bearing lunge test and they showed that greater ankle dorsiflexion with the weight-bearing lunge 
was associated with more knee flexion and greater ankle dorsiflexion displacement. Duh. Right? So basically, they were able to, to bend their knees more if they had more ankle dorsiflexion based on the, not the weight-bearing lunge test. So again, it's just this association between positioning, like a joint action, and then just overall positioning in a movement pattern. But is it going to go beyond me just cueing somebody to push their knees forward in a squat? Like, is it going to equate to me having like a, a whole package of ankle intervention? Or am I just going to be like, yeah, use your, use your quads, you know, like use your ankles or let your knees come I mean, forward. But, Go ahead. Based on the studies data, they didn't improve jump height. That's performance in this realm, right? That's what we're discussing. Yeah. So based on this study, no, I, there would be no reason to implement it. And I, and I, and I think because, because the, stu- the study that, you know, in question, well, the original study that we've been talking about, the premise is so weak. I think I'm, I think I'm kind of setting us up for maybe future talks, <laughs> like how, how, you know, joint actions can influence movements. Like, I, you know, again, I've got three or four listed here, but essentially it comes down to the fact that in a squat in particular, if you alter tibial translation, it changes mechanics upstream. That's all, you know, like, so, uh, they restricted squats. They, they've actually done it several where they restrict some, like a back squat. They restrict tibial translation, um, decreases depth. It decreases joint moments, like at the quads. They measure like decreased activity of the quads. If you can't translate the tibia forward, it's more into like the back and the hips. It increased trunk flexion angle. So it's pretty consistent. But that just, it's, there's, it's not good or bad. It just is. It's just, yeah. at that point, it's just biomechanics. You can measure all kinds of things. Yeah. It doesn't mean you measure anything meaningful or valid that has an actual, you know, disaffects injury risk or performance. Well, no, yeah. So we're past injury risk. It's saying it ain't, well, it ain't pain either. Yeah. But for performance, yeah. I would say that perhaps I'm going off of jump away from that because it's just, there's nothing there, but like squatting <laughs> with for a front squat or an overhead squat. Generally, if we're ta- in a vacuum, if we're taking the same athlete, and we have the athlete do a, a good morning and try to hold a barbell over their head. It's very difficult. But if they have a more vertical torso, which many times translates to their hips driving forward under the bar and their ankles and their you know knees traveling forward, use, utilizing ankle dorsiflexion generally, or generally translates to a position that's more sustainable in a movement like a front squat or an overhead squat. So in, sure. in, in that case, the narrative is simply dorsiflexion allowed us to all or is it part of a position i think it's just a part of the entire kinematic yeah, yeah line yeah. you know yes that's all dorsiflexion is a thing it's not not a thing and we talk about <laughs> because it's a thing it's an actual thing the ankle does this <laughs> yeah we apparently talk, we talk about validity too because there's not, it's not just if it's is it valid or is it invalid because there's subsets of validity does the weight-bearing lunge test is it invalid because it doesn't measure dorsiflexion or is it invalid because that dorsiflexion is not relevant because that's not the same question i i think it's the latter i i just saw a study today i was looking i wish i would have saved it but it actually did demonstrate like you are when we talk about validity i think the wblt is measuring ankle dorsiflexion i think it's a valid test for that so that's more of a question of construct is valid just that right okay 
But what does that mean? That's where the secondary issue of validity comes. And how do we extrapolate out that test results to actually anything meaningful? And is it valid for anything meaningful? Why am I checking this on my athletes and patients? What is it ultimately going to get at? Why does it matter? Or even more so, how are you going to intervene on it? So, you know, it's one thing to have something that's super reliable if you're checking for ankle dorsiflexion, but it ultimately comes down to do we need to change it and does that change come or does that change correlate with whatever outcome measure, whether it be athletic performance or risk reduction? And, and once again, you're already like three steps away from where you started without confirming the first step. Yeah, absolutely. And again, this is all transient effects. If I went back after the single session of voodoo flossing a week later, is it still there? I highly doubt it. My money would say no. So what's the long-term effect of changing ankle dorsiflexion? And can we change it from a long-term perspective? Future research is needed, Mike. Always. What else? What else you guys got? I think I'm done. I think the horse is like, the horse itself is disintegrated. We've kicked the shit out of this horse. Like, there's yes. nothing left. <laughs> yeah, we, we've definitely ridden this one. And uh, so, how many listeners do you think we've lost at this point? Everyone. Well, it's well, all we, started over. With six. we started with five because one of them couldn't make it. Yeah. <laughs> iTunes is currently pulling the podcast. I actually like, think, no. yeah, I just checked iTunes. We're not on there anymore. And the, <laughs> this is not even live yet. We're still just recording this. This is how bad it is. It's just seeped. The shit has just seeped into the air, into the fucking space. All right. Um, I'll reiterate the fact that if you just want, if you want more of this awesome info, should I even plug the events? <laughs> Anything like this? Okay. For more of just us ranting. Come to Boston, yeah, to hear Derek and Mike talk about this more for an entire day and, and uh, add some clinical pearls in there, too. Why does it matter? Well, that's what they're going to tell you in Boston this Saturday on July 8th and also in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and Hillsboro, Oregon, and Ottawa, Canada, Falls Church, Virginia, Richmond, Virginia, Harwood Heights, Illinois, and Seattle, Washington. So check those dates uh, all through the rest of 2017, clinicalathlete.com. Is that it? Thanks for joining us, everyone. Yeah. All right. Appreciate you tuning in. We're done. Thanks. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next time.